Welcome to Flight Safety Detectives. Here, hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation experts, talk about all things aviation safety. This podcast is brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-241-7891. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up on the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, hello, gentlemen. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. John and I have uh, returned from a semi-whirlwind trip uh, across the country, which we will talk about here shortly. But uh, it's always good to see you both. I, uh, I won't say how you are. <laughs> how are you, John? Because I know how you were. We were just together. But how you doing, Todd? Can't complain. What do you mean? Only had you a little complain? bit of snow. Only had a little bit of snow in, in Boston here yesterday. Look, we had things. I haven't warmed up yet from running around in six degree temperature. <laughs> yeah, we had. I mean, we had Thanksgiving, which was good. I'm sure yours was good, and the Patriots won. Against the Bills. So what more could you ask for? In Buffalo. In Buffalo. In Buffalo, no less. So, you know, I mean, uh, the world doesn't get any better than that right now. Hey, no complaints here. Well, before we get started with uh, today's episode and talk about uh, some of the accidents that have happened in the recent past, um, I know, John, that uh, you and I were together traveling around the country. I just want to uh, start the show. Um, after you give us a, a little promo from, uh, from our sponsor of Emco, um, I want to uh, talk about a couple of things, uh, that involve you, unfortunately. And I say that lovingly, John, uh, that involve you before we uh, get cranking. So why don't you, uh, get our sponsor announcement out of the way and, uh, we'll keep going. Okay. Well, folks, there's a couple of entities that help support the show. One is PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, and the other is Avemco Insurance. And if you are an airplane renter, a flight instructor, a personal uh, private pilot, student pilot even, you should be insured to cover yourself for your activities. And Avemco is the premium general aviation insurance provider. So if uh, you have any need for insurance, if you already have insurance and you want to talk insurance, give Avemco a call at 888-879-0389 or avemco.com and you will get a 5% discount on any quoted insurance rates if you mention our show. So please give them a call Talk to them about insurance, your insurance needs, or even just talk to them about aviation. I, I mean, at Oshkosh, I stood next to some of them when they were just talking, hangar flying with people that came by. They're staffed with people that love aviation. Many of them are pilots. So please, if you have any insurance questions, concerns, or just want to talk to them, give them a call. 888-879-0389. Now, you know, Todd. He has rattled that number off pretty smoothly. So he must have that wallpaper down the wall in front of him. Absolutely. Because you know, in the past, he's had a little bit of trouble spitting those numbers out. 
and now it's right here on the computer screen. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's what we love to hear. Well, pretty soon, John, you're going to be relieved of that burden because uh, we're putting together some intros, outros, and uh, commercials with a with a voice that is a little more soothing and uh, at least relaxing and enticing than yours to uh, to announce what we do and, and who sponsors us. So just a few more episodes and then you're relieved of that duty. So I welcome it. Yep, I'm sure welcome. you do. Well, I just want to start the show off today with uh, with an acknowledgement. Um, I am very proud to uh, to be not only a friend, a colleague, but uh, you know, a co-host as well for this show with an award winner. And of course, John is a multi-award winner, but he recently received the National Aeronautics Association Distinguished Statesman Award. And let me just read what that award is. And um, it was attended by uh, a number of friends of ours because they too won awards. Um, John's family was, uh, was there as well. But uh, let me just read you what this prestigious award is all about. The Wesley L. McDonald Distinguished Statesman and Stateswoman of Aviation Award was established in October of 1954 by the Board of Directors of the National Aeronautic Association. The purpose of the award is to honor outstanding living Americans um, who by their efforts over an extended period of years have made contributions of significant value to aeronautics and have, and have reflected credit upon America and themselves. And when we talk about John, and I know that I'm constantly uh, whacking him for being almost as old as dirt and flying with the Wright brothers, which he did, um, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, we do have a distinguished statesman among us that uh, has contributed in basically all of his adult years to aviation. Uh, the last being that when he stopped flying, that really improved aviation safety. So, <laughs> but um, I, I'm very honored that uh, we have uh, we have stayed friends even through thick and thin when he was uh, working for an airline and I was working for the NTSB and uh, we were throwing barbs at each other. But uh, I am I'm very honored to do this show and be his friend and uh, and definitely a colleague. And I know that Todd, you've known John for a long time as well. Indeed, uh, you probably don't have a lot of good things to say, but say them anyway. Well. It's appropriate that you have this award as a statesman uh, of aviation and having been around you for one reason or another for, oh my gosh, I think at least 25 years now, I can tell everyone without hesitation that one can be a statesman without using the language of diplomats. There you go. <laughs> that, that is classic. Uh, that's, that's classic. That is a classic. <laughs> But, well, when you spend 30, over 30 years on a hangar, <laughs> certain words become adjectives. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you've been affected sometimes by some of those exhaust fumes from those jet engines. Too, so. <laughs> and also the noise, because every, sometimes every other word out of my mouth is, huh? 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that is part of your vocabulary. So, but uh, again, congratulations on your award. And um, I just want to give a shout out uh, to two friends of ours, uh, Shelly Simi and of course, Cassandra Bosco, who also won distinguished awards uh, from the NAA uh, at the same time you did, John. So, uh, you know, it is a, it is a great circle. We do and are blessed to have this uh, circle of people that have dedicated their professional lives to uh, contributing to not only aviation, but aviation safety and, um, and programs to entice young people to get into aviation and, of course, the, uh, the space program, aerospace. So I'm glad to see it. I know that uh, your nephew is, uh, is a uh, member of the United States Air Force, and I think that he got a thrill because uh, you introduced him to some people <laughs> at the awards. Well, it's my grandson. I'm sorry, your grandson, yes. And uh, as a lowly airman, first class, you know, about one year in, into, the, uh, into the Air Force, not even a year into the Air Force, less than a year, uh, anyway, we actually have a couple of pictures of him standing straight up, first talking to the general in charge of the Space Force at length. I mean, it's like 10 minutes. And then the Air Force chief of staff uh, had a long conversation with them as well. And I, I'm sure that uh, I, he didn't say anything to me about it, but I'm sure that he was the pucker factor was sky high. Yeah, well... I know it's an honor, John, and uh, of course, uh, we, we know a lot of folks that, uh, that have dedicated that, uh, their, again, professional lives to, uh, to making aviation better and safer. And so we appreciate your contribution, even though sometimes I don't give you all the love and respect that you deserve. I wouldn't have it any other way. Exactly. And, uh, and again, we were uh, traveling. Um, after our little meeting in D.C., uh, John and I then took a, uh, a trip and I put it out on Facebook and I appreciate the people who responded, I put out a little cryptic message about where we were and what we were doing. John and I are working an accident and it happens to be in Minnesota. So when we landed there, of course, it was six degrees. It was a blustery six degrees, spitting snow showers. So there was kind of a rude awakening when we got off the airplane. But we uh, we did end up venturing outside of Minneapolis to points north and south of, uh, of the city. And we ended up in a place called Alexandria, Minnesota. And of course, when I put out on Facebook, uh, you know, I showed a picture where we were, or at least I asked where people thought we were. Um, some were close, including one of our friends, uh, Jeff Edwards. But uh, one of the things that we ran across was the Blanca Aircraft Company manufacturing facility. And those of you in the audience who uh, are very familiar with Blanca Aircraft, um, you know, the Viking is a sexy airplane. It was a single engine airplane along the lines of the Bonanza and the Comanche. And um, just a great airplane. It was fabric covered on, uh, on the fuselage, had a big engine, very roomy um, fuselage, cockpit, cabin area and John and I just happened to be there not knowing that uh, when we saw the factory 
Well, we were looking for some people to talk to about the accident we were investigating, and we ended up getting invited in. And um, they are uh, unfortunately selling off the building. So it was kind of walking back in time, kind of like that field of dreams kind of thing where, you know, build that they will come. Well, the, the factory was there. We walked in and when we started to look at the tooling and all of the parts and you see all the signage of you start to put together this movie in your head, just thinking about the production line of these airplanes that were being manufactured in this little hangar at Alexandria airport. And, uh, and it, it, it was very nostalgic, John. And, um, and talking to the guys who now bought uh, what's left of uh, the Blanca Aircraft Company for spare parts and are moving the operation now to Oklahoma. It was, uh, it, I, I felt, a, you know, a lot of nostalgia. I know you did too. Yeah, I remember those airplanes from a long time ago. Long time ago. Worked well, on some of them. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it's a good-looking airplane, and I put a picture up, and you'll see more pictures. We're going to put them up on the uh, on the website. <clears throat> but it was one of those things where, you know, trying to envision as they were pushing these airplanes, and what weren't they? They, uh, if I remember right, weren't they saying that uh, they were putting out ten airplanes a day in that facility? Yeah, he did tell us ten airplanes, but I forget if it was a week. Yeah. So I forget what he said. See, come on. You're supposed to be taking copious notes. So well, I did notes because it, there was eye candy all over the place. Everywhere <laughs> you looked, there was airplane pots and pieces. And I, I know mean, that was what you were into. Fuel, I know the composite flash there. I couldn't wait. I, you know, I had to climb all over that. <laughs> and uh, and I know you were looking at the the, the mold for the fiberglass. Uh, engine cowlings. Yep. Uh, I mean, it was just like a kid in a candy store, really. When you, you go around there with all the bits and pieces, unfinished airplanes, and and uh, in fact, we left with some bits and pieces. Yeah, we, the the uh, the new owners were nice enough to allow us to uh, take some candy home with us, and I'm waiting for mine. I know you're waiting for yours, but uh, once we get the candy and we fill all the holes that are in this piece of candy. <laughs> we'll take pictures and put them on the website as well. Yes. I do hope the new owners, and you do have connections with them now, have the presence of mind to perhaps donate some candy to the Smithsonian or a suitable museum. I'm sure they'll be interested. Yeah, that may be. That may be. Yeah. So we're well, going to have them on the show. We've offered them to have them on the show and talk about, uh, you know, the why they did it. Why did they jump in and, and try to save what's left of this operation and, uh, and where they hope to take it? And while we were up there, we were over in a maintenance facility where they primarily work on Blanca aircraft. Um, and there were a couple of Viking uh, airplanes in there. And we'll put a couple of those pictures up as well. But uh, just a beautiful airplane, very well maintained, the ones that we saw up there. And, um, and just a, I mean, just a sexy looking airplane uh, for its time. So uh, I, I had forgotten where they were. And, and of course, uh, when we saw that sign up on the hangar, 
um, it, it was instant nostalgia. So uh, we'll, we'll try and uh, bring some of that nostalgia to our viewers and listeners as well. It was a giant magnet. The car just had to go over in that direction. I know. I couldn't stop it from going there. So. I know. Even though you drove over the, the grass. Yeah, well, you know, hey, the car will do what the car will do. <laughs> so, they but. Uh, no uh, uh, swags there. What do they call that thing? The, the ditch that holds all the water between the road and the property. Yeah, so, well, it. It's a little deeper and wider now, so, but well, unfortunately, getting back to reality, it, it was a busy uh, week and a half between the time we're recording this show and, of course, Thanksgiving. We had talked about the fact that holidays, unfortunately, seemed to, to be a time of escalation for air, aircraft accidents and incidents, and uh, there have been a number of them. Um, over the past couple of weeks, uh, the majority of which were fatal. And uh, there was a uh, four fatal V-tail Bonanza that crashed in California um, just recently at the beginning of December. Older pilot, 78 years old, um, had three other adults on the aircraft, not sure how much baggage they had. Uh, the pilot was taking off out of an airport in California that uh, apparently had been either VFR or marginal VFR um, prior to the takeoff. But at the time of takeoff, according to weather and some of the information that's available about the accident, immediately turned to IFR with heavy fog as this airplane was trying to take off. And the airplane was only airborne 16 seconds, 16 seconds before it went up and then came straight down or almost straight down in an open field adjacent to the runway and taxiways and killed all four uh, folks on board. And in looking at uh, this pilot's uh, certification on the FAA website, and again, I've talked about it in the past that, I mean, it's only used as a guide. Who knows how much up-to-date information uh, there is about this particular person, but he did hold a uh, private pilot certificate with single engine and an instrument rating. But the question, there's going to be a number of questions that the board has to answer in its investigation. One, of course, is age and medical issues. Two, the other one is going to be, of course, pilot proficiency and currency with regard to operating in IMC conditions. Uh, the airplane was taking off at night, so that too could be a factor in this particular accident because uh, the departure procedure for that particular airport required a climbing turn. Now, we'll talk about that in a second uh, as to when you should start your climbing turns on a departure procedure of some sort. Um, it appears that this, uh, this pilot may have started that departure procedure immediately after liftoff, which may have either contributed to or caused possibly even spatial disorientation because of the environment he was operating in. And then as, uh, as in every accident, you're always looking for mechanical malfunction or failure uh, of the aircraft that may have caused or contributed to the accident. Yeah, in fact, that given that 16 seconds, I mean, he didn't, he didn't have a hell of a lot of attitude, uh, altitude to deal with any kind of a mechanical problem. Yeah. 
And, and when you look at these kinds of things, we know as instrument pilots, and again, this is just one of those refresher things where um, looking at how fast the weather moved in, I saw some of the comments on the internet about the fact that uh, the weather had moved in quickly. So the airport had gone from either VFR or, or marginal VFR to solid IFR in a very short period of time. And that really brings up a point for pilots who are getting ready where you get out to the airport, you go through all your pre-flight preparations, you think you got it all wired, you get in the airplane, you start it up, you're talking to ATC, uh, you may be getting a clearance of some sort. And in that period of time, the weather hasn't stopped. The weather's still dynamic and moving. And in this case, um, we don't know if the pilot may have then checked the weather one more time, whether it was an ASOS, AWOS, or even looking on his phone to see if there was an update uh, of the weather. But, um, you know, some of the comments that I saw on the internet were, of course, that, you know, maybe this guy should have checked the weather one more time before he started to initiate and, and head out because that there was heavy fog that apparently rolled in over the top of this airport in a very short period of time. And, and, and that brings up two things, guys. One, um, a lot of general aviation pilots, because part 91 doesn't have any kind of limitation, will allow you to take off in basically zero, zero weather conditions. While that's not necessarily a smart move, um, you know, pilots have done it. But there's two considerations. One, if you think you're going out VFR and you inadvertently get into this fast moving IFR or IMC type weather that moves in, now you've put yourself in a position of jeopardy. But two, even if you're on an IFR flight plan, you're IFR current and qualified and, and proficient, you blast off into that weather. If it is low, heavy fog like that, are the weather conditions going to prevent you from coming back if you have a problem because the airport is now below any kind of approach minimums? And you have to factor that in to your pre-flight planning as John, you're always talking about that preparation. If I leave, can I get back in with the weather? Those are all part of the questions that you should be asking. Uh, maybe even before you get to the airport, you know, maybe when home, when you're starting to think I'm going to be flying in a couple hours, start thinking about putting your head in the game, so to speak, start thinking about what do I need to be concerned with? You know, and don't stop at simple VFR. Another thing with this event, and again, it's too early to speculate, but this was a smaller aircraft with four adults on board. One question I'd have, is this someone who's used to flying with four adults on board? Yep. Is this something where it was a special trip, there was a lot of extra baggage, and maybe there was a weight and balance situation going on? I would hope that the NTSB investigators would address this in some detail. But hope is not a strategy. And given what we've talked about in recent weeks, I'm not optimistic. But it is a question I have. Yep. And on top of that, Todd, you bring up a good point. And, and that is, was there self-induced pressure to actually conduct this flight? Was there a I've got to go, a get home-itis or get there-itis type situation that, you know, pressed upon the pilot? to attempt to fly in these weather conditions that one may not have been his original intent, but two caused him to get into some sort of inadvertent event and, uh, and he wasn't able to handle it. 
And it's because, you know, hey, we got to go. So I'll tell you, 16 seconds tells me that something can't something happened quickly. Yep. And, and of course, any kind of physiological type phenomenon, uh, such as spatial disorientation, can the onset in this case could have happened even before he left the ground, just because he's going into an abyss. That is, you know, you have visibility that's obscured. You don't have a clear view of the runway, uh, the runway lights or anything else. And as soon as you break ground and get into that goo, um, you are dedicated to those instruments. And if you're making a climbing turn of some sort and you're not proficient, you're not current, you're not used to it, you're gonna put yourself into the ground pretty, pretty quickly, so. Um, you know, and, and you know what? It doesn't even take an engine failure with, with that low an altitude. Yeah. All you need to have is a problem with the engine. Yep. You know, all of a sudden it stops making power. Maybe you got a slug of water in the gas and now it's, it's not running uh, very efficiently. It's running, but not running very efficiently. Yep. And so you're so, not making maximum power and now you're not going to climb. Fortunately, the airplane, it doesn't look like it burned. So the board should have some good physical evidence to work with, with the air, excuse me. The board should have some good physical evidence to work with since the airplane didn't burn. So hopefully we'll get some mechanical answers uh, with regard to the operational condition of the aircraft itself. Um, moving on, there was a uh, twin engine Piper uh, Navajo Chieftain that crashed in Medford, Oregon. The next day after this V-tail Bonanza crashed, uh, there were two people on board, male pilot, female passenger. And in listening to the air traffic control tape uh, that, uh, you know, anybody and everybody can find on, uh, on the Internet. Petrick Ground, Navajo 64 Bravo Romeo, with uh, information uniform at uh, Jet Center. I'd like to pick up our IFR departure. Navajo 64 Bravo Romeo, Medford Ground. Cleared to the Foxtrot Lima X-ray Airport via the Brute 7 departure, length transition, then as filed, climb and maintain 1-1000. Expect 1-5000 five minutes after departure. Departure frequency 124.3, squawk 6677. The departure is a Route 7 or a Brute 7? B is in Bravo. Navajo 4, Bravo Romeo. Brute 7, Bravo Romeo. Uniform, Tango, Echo, with the Lanks transition. Please give me the phonetic for the transition. Navajo 4, Bravo Romeo, Lima. Alpha, November, Kilo, Sierra. This pilot, even though he was a commercial uh, certificated pilot, he held a, uh, an instrument rating. He was airplane single engine land and C and multi-engine rated. And he had a B-25 type rating uh, as SIC. The question, well, there's a lot of questions. But in listening to his exchange with air traffic controllers, when he was getting his clearance on the ground, he seemed confused. He really, 
he really had a hard time and the controller was talking slow. It wasn't like the controller was talking fast. This guy wasn't able to take all the shorthand notes. This, <laughs> this controller was actually talking very slow. And he had some issues in, in uh, at least understanding the type of clearance that he was getting. There was a, a standard instrument departure as part of the clearance that he had questions about. And he was trying to, uh, to understand the phonetics of the names of these transitions he was supposed to fly. And on top of that then, which caught my attention, was the fact that besides he eventually read the clearance back uh, correctly, as soon as he departed, he was wondering if the, uh, the controllers were going to call his turns for these transitions, to which the controller said, no, just fly the standard departure. So there was a, a lot of confusion there. Now, is that because he doesn't understand it? Is it because he wasn't current and proficient, even though he's an instrument rated pilot? Um, you know, did he have some sort of medical condition that was going on? Because this pilot was about 68 years old. So, you, you know, you have to factor that in. So that's going to be something that the board, uh, I believe, will have to look at because he just didn't sound good in getting this clearance on the initial takeoff. And then he went radio silent as soon as he broke ground, basically lost the airplane uh, shortly after takeoff, the airplane, according to the radar data, the airplane didn't get very high. Looks like it went into a graveyard spiral, um, but was coming down vertically. Uh, there's a couple of uh, videos out there on YouTube that show this airplane going into a car dealership lot vertically. Now, again, as we talked with the other accident, is there an engine failure? Did the pilot get into a BMC stall spin, stall spiral type event? Did he get some sort of disorientation because he too was taking off into weather at night? Um, these are gonna be questions. Did he have a medical event? Uh, all of these things are gonna factor into uh, this particular investigation. Yeah, you know what? It's, it's uh, painful to hear about these for a older pilots, you know, that we've had a lot of discussion and we touched upon it ourselves here a show or two ago about the insurance rates for older pilots and, and what it's doing, pricing some of them out of the cockpit. Uh, but you know what, when you start looking at the statistics of late, uh, it makes you look at it and say, you know what, what's going on with our older pilots? Yeah. And, and again, we don't, I mean, the pilot had flown in a couple of days, several days before um, the accident flight, he had flown into Medford and was returning back to what appears to be the origin um, uh, home airport, if you will. And, um, and again, was there some sort of self-induced pressure to make this happen? Do we know if the airplane was mechanically sound? These are going to be questions that need to have answers. Now, unfortunately, where this airplane crashed in this car dealership, there was a post-crash fire. And so that could make really determining um, the uh, mechanical operation of the airplane difficult for the board investigator. We know what that's like, don't we? We're crashing into a bunch of cars on the ground. Yeah, you and I did one where this uh, airplane decided to crash in a, <laughs> in a, in a uh, storage lot for um, salvaged cars and that kind of stuff, except that was 10,000 cars. <laughs> so, 
trying to separate airplane pieces from car parts took us a little while. So, was that the event in uh, Sacramento? Yeah, in Rancho Cordova, California. So, and then there was another twin engine accident in uh, Shadron, Ohio, or Shadron, Nebraska. Cessna 310 pilot uh, returning his son to uh, to his place of work and dropped him off and was um, taking apparently a young lady, presumably a girlfriend of his son, bringing her back and I presume him back to Fort Collins, Colorado, taken off out of Shadron, had a problem, lost control of this airplane and, uh, and crashed and both of them were fatal. And again, another question with not only, uh, it's another twin engine airplane, twin engine proficiency. That is, you lose an engine, have a mechanical problem, and that requires your multi-engine pilot skills to kick in. Why isn't this pilot able to handle these, this particular issue? Currency, proficiency. Was there some sort of mechanical issue that adversely affected the operation of the airplane to prevent the pilot from being able to take uh, corrective actions? Or was there then something uh, with the pilot as far as a physiological event that took place that uh, may have caused or contributed to the accident? Um, it, it's just, and it goes on and on and on. There were a number of other accidents as well. One that just happened the day before we're recording this show, which uh, we're going to put a link to, uh, to the video, if not the video on our, our website, is an accident and, and it's really actually just a very significant incident because the airplane came away unscathed, but it was miraculous. And that is a fully loaded DC-3. It was a super DC-3. So they have different engines on this particular airplane taking off out of uh, Anchorage International Airport. From what I understand, um, it may have been fully loaded. So it was going to be heavy coming out of there. And shortly after takeoff, uh, the, the crew lost the right engine. They had a problem with the right engine and weren't able to climb higher than about 300 feet AGL. And there is some video that's circulating on the internet. I think it's YouTube where somebody in a high rise building sees this airplane flying right by downtown Anchorage. And they're looking down from their position in this tower, looking down on the airplane as they videoed it. And uh, the airplane ended up clipping some trees. They couldn't go back to Anchorage, so they ended up uh, diverting to Merrill Field um, a short distance away. This airplane clipped a bunch of trees on its approach going into Merrill. And it's ironic because I had worked a Cessna 207 accident at that same location where this airplane hit the trees. There is an apartment building just in front of those trees that I investigated an accident that actually hit that building. So it was kind of ironic that it took off the tops of these trees. Airplane still was able to fly, make it to the runway. The right wing struck a snowbank and ended up uh, landing on the, uh, on the runway, which is, which is kind of ironic because one, yes, they made it to the runway after hitting trees and a snowbank. You would have thought that would have really had an adverse uh, outcome with, the, with this airplane. But the, the interesting thing is, is when you watch the video, the airplane is technically sliding down this runway and it slides for a long distance. And I'm thinking, 
that doesn't look like the airplane has made a gear up landing and sliding down the belly of the airplane. Well, sure enough, in the DC-3, the wheels hang down below the engine nacelles, the doors close, so you do have uh, a partial tire hanging out below the aircraft, and the airplane is just rolling down the runway on its gear. And um, in talking to some folks that I know up at Merrill Field, I said, so how bad was the damage? They go, the airplane was relatively unscathed for going through all of that, including taking those treetops off and hitting the snowbank. Gives a lot credence to the fact that those Douglas DC-3s are built like tanks and they just go on and on and on. I mean, here we are, we're approaching 90 years, what's it, 85 years to be safe? Yeah. Flying for that long. And uh, they're just out there. There's a lot of them out there. Yeah, And a couple of points for the uh, younger people in the audience. By younger, I mean under the age of 65. Uh, <laughs> these aircraft were flown by the thousands in World War II, and they were used as airliners all over the world. But begs the question, this is the year 2021. Why would any operation, cargo or passenger, want to use a DC-3 in a stage day and age, especially in Alaska? Because they get the job done. They and they're going, they're going into... Freight. And they get into airports with rough fields. I mean, it really is quite an airframe. And it's rugged. So if you got a hole in the runway, you know, the military loved it. Because if the, the runway is unimproved or have, you know, maybe the snow hasn't been cleared off or you have a frost heave and it's uneven, uh, it can take the bumps and keep on going. Yeah. It's a on, rugged, a, on a personal area. note, in 1975, I was actually a passenger on a passenger flight on a DC-3 going uh, from the mainland of Honduras to the island of Rotan. And uh, let's just say it was an interesting flight because I'm thinking, this airplane isn't new, but this is an airline. They're running it like a regular airline. You know, one flight was all passengers. The other flight was passengers on one side, all sorts of furniture and cargo on the other. And uh, it was an interesting side note to my aviation career as a passenger. Well, the DC-3 up in Alaska, you know, as John just said, you know, you're going into short strips, you're going into unimproved areas and things like that. And it, it is a tank. I mean, it is uh, solid. Um, it's uh, well-maintained. Yeah, they use big round engines on it. Some of the newer versions, there is a turboprop converted DC-3. And, and again, because the airframe is proven, it can fly slow. It can get into those places, uh, especially up in Alaska. And, um, and again, uh, having lived up there because I worked for the safety board up there for a period of time. And I still have a lot of connections and I'm working a number of accidents up there right now. Uh, I called some of my uh, contacts over, you know, in various places and uh, just trying to get some understanding about this particular event. And they said that uh, the airplane had been in for some maintenance and apparently an engine change, presumably this right engine. And it wasn't long out of that engine change so again, the safety board's going to be looking at what was done to this engine to cause it to fail, especially if it either just came out of maintenance or very shortly out of maintenance. They're going to want to know, was it done correctly? Uh, was the installation done correctly and things like that? But I will say, based on looking at these videos and uh, listening to the air traffic control commentary between the crew, um, they only got 300 feet above the ground and, and to milk that airplane, single engine, 
uh, to Merrill Field and get it down in one piece without hurting anybody or putting that airplane in the middle of downtown Anchorage is a testament to the pilots, uh, the wherewithal of that airplane and that airframe, but uh, to their skill to at least recognize what's going on, do what they needed to do. It was really seat of the pants flying. This, I mean, it, you, when you listen to this air traffic control tape, you can hear whichever pilots on the radio goes from kind of a normal, you know, professional to mayday, mayday, we got to put this airplane on the ground, we're going to Merrill Field. You know that high stress, high anxiety uh, set in, and that too can induce a lot of problems as, as far as operating the aircraft, but these guys did a great job in getting the airplane down in one piece, so. Yes, it's a, it was a tribute to their skills. You know, dodging the high rises in Anchorage, if you can only be 300 feet above the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And finding a route through that, that concrete jungle to get to the airport. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that, uh, again, um, we're going to be talking about some specific accidents. John, you and I had some time to spend together when we were traveling, talking about the accidents we're going to dissect in the near future. Um, and having been up in Minnesota, uh, there are a number of accidents that uh, you and I talked about that we want to get into. It was a, um, there's a Beach King Air that crashed that had a senator and his family on board that we're going to dissect because I think while the board did a decent job in investigating that accident, they didn't really get to all of the factors that caused or contributed to that accident. So I think that that one's going to be an interesting one for our, our viewers and listeners. And then there was a, uh, a jet stream uh, 31 that crashed in, um, in uh, Michigan, I believe, that, uh, or Hibbing, Minnesota, that was uh, an icing event that I think will be a, a good accident to talk about as well. And then um, we've, uh, we've gotten some good suggestions from our viewers and listeners about other events that we should talk about and dissect. So um, we've got a busy, uh, a busy time coming through the holiday to get prepared. And uh, we're going to start off the new year with, uh, with some good accidents to dissect. But we really appreciate the feedback. We definitely appreciate our viewers and our listeners continue to, uh, to get us uh, the, the ratings that we need on whoever you watch either on YouTube or uh, any kind of uh, podcast service. Um, John, you were telling me the other day that we've got, what, 250,000 downloads or something to that effect? We're on the cusp of 250. We should hit 250 uh, uh, before the end of the year. Good. And so I know that I you and I... What December has given us, but that we're within striking distance in November. See, and that's that, again, is a tribute to our listeners and viewers. We're trying to bring you content. Um, some of the information now that's heating up again on MH370, the airplane that went missing over the South Indian Ocean. Uh, we know some folks in that part of the world who have been providing us a lot of information. There is uh, some new technology that a, uh, an engineer has said that uh, he now has pinpointed the airplane. I doubt that, but... <laughs> Hey, I'm open to anything. I hope, I hope they could find some remnants of it where this, uh, where this guy thinks it is. But we're gonna, uh, we're gonna follow up and, and do a show about MH370 and try and bring you the different perspectives. There's a lot of conspiracy theories still out there, a lot of unanswered questions and things that keep coming out on a daily basis. So we think that that's of interest again. So 
we're looking forward to bringing all of this to you. I was looking at some of the data that came in from that uh, from that engineer, and uh, boy, it sure it sure sounds or looks uh, like good data. So we'll have to wait and see, but it uh, defies description. You know, I I guess maybe I would say that if it proves out to be true that that airplane rests. Uh, further south where it has been predicted by a number of pilots that it's further south and that the Australian government uh, ignored it at the request of the Malaysian government, then it will certainly cause a big ripple in the independence of the Australian Accident Board. Oh, sure. If they had that kind of political influence. And again, um, and I know we're going to wrap the show, but you know, when you start looking at the bottom of the South Indian ocean, it's like the Rocky mountains down there. Um, they have mountains that tower up to 15,000 feet off the ocean floor. Um, so you've got a lot of crevices. You've got a lot of jagged uh, terrain down there. And not to mention there's 2000 feet of silt on the bottom of the South Indian ocean. So even if the airplane made it intact, flew through the water, landed somewhere flat on the bottom of the ocean, it's going to sink into that 2,000 feet of silt. Now the question is, what kind of technology are you going to need to penetrate, whether it's you know penetrating radar, uh, ground penetrating radar, to try and find that under this silt bed? So we're going to talk about all of those things. But again, we want to say thank you to, uh, to the listeners and viewers. Keep the suggestions coming. You can always contact us at our uh, website, both at the website and our email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. Todd, I will give you some words before I turn it over to John to finalize and let him have the last words. Well, once again, we congratulate you, John, for the uh, well-deserved accolades. And uh, I'm sure there'll be many more in the weeks and months to come and years to come. Oh. I don't care about the accolades. I just like many months. <laughs> In years. <laughs> In years. Yes. All right. So again, folks, the show is brought to you in part, at least, by uh, Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA.org, and also by Avemco Insurance. Now, Avemco has been protecting general aviation pilots since 1961. They're very, very highly rated, and they specialize in the kinds of planes you fly and how you fly them. So if you're going to go, or if you need insurance, please contact Avemco, 888 Here we go again. It's 888-879-0389. Too many eights. 888-879-0389. 0389. Give them a call. Tell them you've listened to the show. You get a 5% discount. And as I say at the end of every single show, if you're going to go flying, please do a good job of pre-planning your flight, including if you have to return to the airport if something unexpected happens. And then when you get out to the airplane, do the most thorough pre-flight that you can assume nothing make sure you check your airplane well if you're concerned that you maybe could do a better job 
get a hold of a mechanic that works on that type of airplane regularly and talk to them about what you should be looking at before you go flying. And then when you are flying, please fly safely, especially if you have passengers on board. This show will come to you a week before Christmas. And one of the most painful things that we had, and Greg, I know will agree with this, most painful things that we had while working at the NTSB was doing fatal accidents before Christmas. It just, it, it's a gut wrench. It just eats you inside when you see it the time of the year, all the families getting together and then and just fatal accidents. So please, please, please plan your flight, do a good job of, of pre-flight and fly safely. To listen to more episodes of this show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening and remember to fly safe.